in first service when the when the beat drops, boom! I have my jacket on and I was doing that. Wiki, wiki, wiki. And then Donald said, don't do that. And I said, challenge accepted. I will do that. So with those questionnaires that Sarah was talking about, I got to tell you, you guys are way nice. Way nice. I expected, we, we sent one of these questionnaires out to some of our uh, gospel community leaders. And it came back with like, oh, this is terrible. You guys stink. That was some stuff. They're nice too. But there is just some really things you got to work on in them. And then you, we give this to you guys, and you guys are like, oh, Element's great. Well, it's okay. You can say, like, stuff we need to grow on. We're an honest church. We don't hide things from you guys. If there's places we need to grow, let us know, because we realize there's places we need to grow. So go ahead and fill it out and say whatever you want in it. Thank you. I, seriously, wh- whatever you want. <laughs> that doesn't mean if you already filled it out and said nice things, you can go back and fill out another one. No, you can't. I don't care. It's, it's all fine. Hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are also short summer, uh, sermon notes for the summer. They look like this. And we have the minor prophet on this side. He kind of looks like he's the founding father of America with his fake white wig. Uh, but on the back side, you're going to get some stats of you know kind of who they are, like their baseball card. And on the top, you'll get the verses we're going through today. On the bottom, you'll get, uh, usually, it was like, a question, and we did one question throughout the summer so you guys could get together, catch up on each other's lives, and ask one simple question reflecting on the sermon, but they're getting longer each week. (laughs) So now there's like three questions. You'll live. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. Uh, if you are in our local area, we'll come up by GPS like that. If you're not in our local area, type in the zip code 93455, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, and it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I got to tell you that some of the nicest verses in the entire book of Zephaniah, because Zephaniah is hellfire and brimstone most of the time. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would take us as a people and have us understand your great love for us and that you do long to sing over us as your people, that you draw us to yourself. But not only that, you then send us out and that we would be your hands and feet to this entire world, that we would proclaim the goodness of who you are in ways that make sense to the culture that is around us, fully coming back and always speaking about the gospel. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series called The Minors, uh, last 12 books of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. Uh, The very last one of these I will do is going to be Habakkuk. We're going to spend six weeks in him, but every other one is one-week overviews. And if we did in-depth in every single one, we'd probably be in these for like years. And it also leaves time later if I want to come back and go more in-depth in books, I can can still do that. Now today, we're going to get to this prophet named Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is a guy that kind of gets lost in a lot of places today. His book is three chapters long. There's not a lot of memorable lines, and he's not like a lot of the other prophets. Uh, Zephaniah is a guy that you change two letters in his name, and you get Zechariah. A lot of people remember Zechariah. He he 
prophesies between two big heavy hitters, a guy named Isaiah and a guy named Jeremiah. So he sits in the middle of them, and that's why I think he kind of gets lost at times. It's kind of like that Star Wars movie Han Solo that came out, you know, a couple years ago. It was my favorite of the new Star Wars movies. You can disagree, but you'd be wrong. It, it is. It was. It's a great movie, but it came out between The Last Jedi and Rise of the Skywalker, so it kind of got lost in the middle of the fray of all of it. And I'm kind of bummed because it was really good. Well, that's like Zephaniah. Zephaniah comes along in the middle of all these other, and he kind of gets lost just a little bit. So when Zephaniah speaks, uh, what I told you a few weeks ago about where Israel is in this moment is in 900 BC, Israel splits into two kingdoms. Up to that point, they had been a unified kingdom. In 900 BC, internal issues caused them to split, and you get the northern tribes, northern ten tribes, who then call themselves Israel. Then you have the southern two tribes calling themselves Judah. They had about the same amount of land mass between the two of them. Because the northern kingdom never had one godly king, eventually 722 BC, God sends the Assyrians in to discipline that northern kingdom, essentially wipes them out, takes some people off to captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah will actually stay where they are till about 587 BC when the Babylonians will take out the Assyrians and then come down and take out the rest of Judah. Where Zephaniah preaches is about 625 BC. So the southern kingdom is still there, but they're steeped in sin. Zephaniah is most likely 25 years of age or younger. He's got a whole lot of zeal and a whole lot of passion. And if you think of prophets of the Old Testament, he's what most people think of. Screaming about the day of the Lord and repentance. You go down to Times Square in New York City, sandwich board, repent! And Zephaniah. Okay, that's, it's like, wow, he got loud. That, that's Zephaniah right, right there. That, that's him. Now, when, when he speaks, he's going to speak during the reign of a king named Josiah. And Josiah takes the kingdom when he is eight years old because someone assassinates his evil dad. And when he's 16 years old, they rediscover the words of the Old Testament law. They re rediscover the scriptures and they start reading them again. And when Josiah is 16, he starts to steer all of Israel back to worshiping God again. And where they think where Zephaniah preaches in, is in those eight years from when the Josiah is eight years old and before he's 16. So he says these words and maybe these words is what begins to draw Israel back to worship of God. But again, he is very passionate and a lot of things in the book are kind of harsh. So if you have a Bible, open to the book of Zephaniah. If you have an element Bible, that's page 510 to 513. If you have the app, just scroll and you're already there. Way to go. So Zephaniah is going to start with a bang. It's like pure gold. Here's the greatest hits of prophets right here. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I, that's God speaking through Zephaniah, will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of, uh, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
I wish I had like James Earl Jones voice. So I could be like, the day of the Lord. And, but I don't. I have this junior high girl voice, so that's what you get. But when it speaks about this, th- this is kind of almost reflects back to Noah and dark clouds. And here's God sending these things. And these words are going to reflect what happened to the 10 northern tribes when Assyria came through there. It's also going to reflect what happens to Assyria when Babylon takes them out. And it's also being a precursor of what will happen to the kingdom of Judah, those southern two tribes, when Babylon comes through and takes them out. And when God does this, he's saying, I'm not surprised when this happens. I am allowing this to happen for the discipline of my children. God doesn't do this out of malice. God is going to do this out of restorative love for his people. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you the four main themes that Zephaniah walks through in this book, see how it relates to us, and then we'll find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Tall order, I'm a professional, we'll be okay. All right, so the first thing he talks about is the day of the Lord. Taking notes, write that down, day of the Lord. For a lot of prophets, this is a big theme. And you know what? It still is for a lot of people who call themselves Christians today. If you are a Christian and you've only been one a very short time, you'll eventually hear about this thing Christians talk about called the rapture. Now, there are different views of how this has looked over the last couple hundred years, but there is this large push behind it that says Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take his people off of this earth, and then the rest of the earth is just going to burn like this trailer park called Earth just goes up in flames. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, that specific view of that is only a couple hundred years old at this point. And if you want to see how God actually talks about judgment, day of the Lord, His return and all that, you need to look at a good pattern of how He speaks about that in these Old Testament scriptures and how some New Testament writers speak about it as well. And I'm not saying that we're going to find ultimate fulfillment in life before Jesus comes back, but there are good things to look at in the scriptures of what that will actually mean for us. Now, as an example, the book of Revelation will speak about a new heavens and a new earth. And a lot of people who look at this, God's just going to destroy everything kind of view of the scriptures, they're not really understanding how these people were actually writing about it when they speak of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, John, the guy who writes the book of Revelation, was Jewish. So it might be good to understand how a Jewish person would have understood those words. When people say, well, God's going to destroy this earth and make a new one, well, If you look through the scriptures, in all honesty, when has God ever made something good and then just destroyed it to make a new one? And the answer is, He doesn't. What God does is He takes that thing that was good and He redeems it. He renews it. He restores it. He brings it to what it was meant to be. And so God does these things. You look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin against God. They run. Uh, they, so God expels them out of the garden. It isn't like your Lego set, your erector set, that, oh my goodness, these parts went bad. I'll just start all over. What God does instead is he sets about a plan of redemption to bring his people back to be his image bearers in the world. He's going to redeem. He's going to restore. He's going to renew. You go to Noah and the ark when God sends these floodwaters upon the earth in judgment. But God doesn't completely destroy the earth. He resets it and then takes his broken image bearers again and sets them out in the world to begin to speak about who he is and he restores mankind. This will happen with a guy named Abraham. It'll happen in this thing called the Exodus. 
Israel, even though there are these prophets talking about how Babylon's going to come in and haul them off to captivity, God will still speak about how He's going to bring them back again. He will restore them. When Jesus comes, you have His life, His death, His resurrection. This is not about the destruction of the earth or destruction of humankind. It's about the removal of sins so there could be restoration. And the good news, the gospel, that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, that Jesus died our death in our place, that He lays His righteousness upon us, that because of His death and resurrection, we get new life to be in relationship with God. All of that is about the removal of our sin so that we can be before God blemishless, even though we have blemishes. When you get to the book of Revelation and it talks about new heavens and new earth, that's not about destruction. Those words are about renewal and restoration of what God is going to bring back. It is God doing what God always does redeems and restores. God takes the good thing He made and restores it to the purpose for which He made it. Now, in that renewal, are there things that are burned up? Sure, namely our sin and those kind of things. And there is judgment that comes. But when we read through these words of the day of the Lord, we tend to do what Israel tend to do, is we tend to look at that and say, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. That's for the evil people, and I'm not the evil people. The day of the Lord was meant to be something that we see that resets us to understand God's righteousness and His holiness. The Israelites, even though they understood that idea of restoration, they still thought that those ideas of judgment were going to be reserved for everybody else, the evil people. And that's how a lot of Christians today still see this thing called the day of the Lord. You have to understand that the day of the Lord is essentially when God brings about what He says He's going to bring about. And throughout the course of Israel's history, there were different days of the Lord that actually happened. When the Assyrians came through, that was considered a day of the Lord. When the Babylonians came into Judah, that was considered a day of the Lord. When God brought His people back from captivity, that was considered a day of the Lord. When Jesus comes and dies for our sin, that is the day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, that is, again, the day of the Lord. And it is so weird when we hear these words about Christ coming back or the, or the day of the Lord, we think for some reason it's about God proving us right and everybody else is wrong and they're going to be sorry. We make it about politics or economics or weird theological ideas like we could ever fit God himself into our three pound tiny little brain. The Old Testament prophets get people to see correctly that we all need to repent, meaning return to who God is calling us to be and that the day of the Lord is for all of us. Now, there's an Old Testament prophet named Amos. I'm not preaching through that, uh, that one, so I'm hoping not stealing anybody's thunder here. But he says this in Amos 5, 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord." Amos writes that to the people in Israel. He's trying to take this misinterpretation of what they've seen and show them the wicked in Israel are not going to go unscathed on that day. The day of the Lord was not a vindication of Israel or America or Christianity, but is of the righteousness of God. The day of the Lord. Whose day is the day of the Lord? It's the Lord's day. It's His. It's all about Him and not about us. Amos will talk about it being a day of darkness 
and not light. The same thing Zephaniah will says with those clouds of thick darkness. Zephaniah will talk about it like a banquet where the people who show up are like, yeah, God's in my pocket. He's on my side. This is my banquet. And they end up being the victims. Zephaniah 1.14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Mighty men don't cry. Mighty men suck it up. No, the mighty man here are those who think they're righteous, like most of us, only to realize our righteousness is like filthy rags before the holiness of who God is. And for us, what we have to understand, which we'll get there in a minute, is that our righteousness comes from Christ himself. But again, we're going to get there. You got to go with me. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about we're terrible and God's good. So here we go. So the day of the Lord is meant to lead to this next thing, which is a call to humility. When we understand who God is and his holiness and how we are not perfect or holy, it leads to humility. Zephaniah, like a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, talk about God's greatness. And he recognizes the only hope for his people in, or the nations at large lies in an awareness of our own frailty and God's goodness. That God is God and we are not. That he is Savior and we cannot save ourselves that he does this work in and through our lives. And so what Zephaniah does is he exhorts the southern two kingdoms of Judah to return to a place of humility before the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Again, the day of the Lord. Pride is what all the surrounding nations were called out for. Moab, Amnon, um, the Assyrians, all called out for that. But Israel didn't see that pride in themselves. They only saw it in everybody else, which is a reminder to us because we do the same thing. We see pride in everybody else, but not ourselves. And so what he's talking to his people is those who escape this day of the Lord in humility are those who say, God is my salvation. God is, brings me salvation. It's not found in me. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Now, if you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 18. Keep your place in Zephaniah. We're going to come back there. But go to Luke chapter 18. The church father, Augustine, said that all of our sin stems from pride. That's where it begins. And so Jesus is constantly also speaking about pride, which is the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks about as well. Why does Jesus speak about pride? Because God's consistent. And Jesus is God in the flesh, and pride is an issue for his people. And so Jesus tells this parable. We looked at this a couple months ago. We're going to look at it again today about people who thought they loved God but didn't really understand what pride and superiority was doing to those around them. And so Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, this is part of what Zechariah or Zephaniah is talking about here, that these attitudes are what bothered Jesus the most. And so now Jesus is telling this story to a people who thought they were righteous. I follow God. I'm great. Everybody else messed up, but they themselves were actually incredibly unrighteous. And so who are the characters in the story? Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now today, we have a different view of Pharisees, right? We think Pharisees are self-righteous, religious, always wanting to put the religiosity and everybody else, oh, those, those terrible Pharisees. But you got to understand, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were it. They were the people everybody wanted to be. They were righteous. They did righteous things. When you thought, who's better than me? You would think, the Pharisees, they're better than me. 
They followed the way of God. They were extreme patriots to their country. They were very serious about God. And then you have a tax collector. Tax collectors, they felt about tax collectors like we still feel about tax collectors. Right? <laughs> you know, they're, they're traitors to their country, scum of the earth, former singer in a boy band, tax collector. And you don't understand the story if you don't get the feel of what Jesus is throwing out there. Extreme person you like, extreme person you hate. In America, okay, uh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. When you hear those names, you go one way or the other. No one's like, eh, it's, it is like love, hate, hate, love. That's how you feel. It's an extreme dichotomy, and that's what Jesus is throwing out there. You need to understand the extreme dichotomy of what's taking place here. When we come to pride and superiority, we're dealing with a problem that's very hard for us to get a grip on because we don't recognize it in ourselves. I have never had one person come to me in my office to talk about their pride problem until their life burned down from their pride problem because one of the biggest problems with superiority and pride is those who suffer from it don't see that they suffer from it. Now, this is why the day of the Lord is important for us to understand because we'll lead to humility. So, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I think that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's like, thank you. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, and that is totally true. This is an extremely moral person. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows he has nothing to offer. How tax collectors made their revenue and income for themselves is they would extort their own people. They leverage huge taxes on people to pay for their own lives and then give a huge sum of that to the Roman government. You ever seen like a, like a TV show or a movie in a mom and pop shop like downtown and like people walk in the door and they go, oh, nice shop you got here. It's a dangerous place. You might need some protection. You never know what's going to happen. That's my godfather. That's what I got, sir. Thank you. Second service was just like, no, I'm sorry. It, it's done. You know what I mean? You better pay up. Okay, so, so he cries out for mercy because he knows he needs it. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, tax collector, Godfather, that guy went down to his house justified. And if you have a Bible and you write in it, you should circle or underline that word justified right there. It means the righteousness of God was laid upon him. He's made right with God. I tell you, this man that went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, trusting in his own righteousness, left him worse off than the mean-spirited IRS agent. Israel thought that they were righteous. They refused to look at their own pride and superiority in their lives. Many followers of Christ today end up in that same place. And when you understand the day of the Lord, that's about His righteousness, that is meant to change us. Do you know what irony means? This is how it's defined. The use of words to convey a meaning that is opposite of its literal meaning. Sometimes we think that's sarcasm. Like your boss comes to you and says, oh, I need you to work this weekend. You say, how wonderful. That's sarcasm. That's not irony, okay? Irony is that the majority of Christians today, we hear this story about the humble tax collector and the mean, self-righteous Pharisee, and we say, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. The people originally who heard this story would say, thank God I'm not like that tax collector. And what, what we do today is the exact opposite of what they did. 
Look at the Pharisee and we say, man, that guy's theology was all messed up. He didn't understand the heart of God. Thank God I'm better than that guy that thought he was better than everybody else. That's irony. That's irony. It's not humble. And this is why God is constantly calling his people to understand the day of the Lord, to understand what the gospel is. It is God's rescue of us because that will bring us humility. And again, we're going to come back to that in, in just a minute. So day of the Lord, call to humility. Third thing it goes into, which relates as well, is this, the understanding of God's covenant. And understanding God's covenant, bringing his people back to himself, is also the understanding of this thing called the restoration of the remnant. And you're like, what does that mean? Let me try and explain what this means. Like all prophets, Zephaniah was considered to be an interpreter of God's covenant with his people. Simply put, God's covenant with his people is God's relational promises to his people. And so in seeing what God is going to do in judgment here, though it would be drastic with his people taken off, he also saw that God would then bring his people back and restore them after he disciplined them. He would restore this remnant of his people. And this restored remnant is meant to be a people who would begin to do God's works in the world because they simply loved God first. In the book of Micah, another minor prophet that I'm not covering, some, somebody else will do that, but he sees this remnant as an instrument of blessing and power among the nations. And so Zephaniah combines all these things together, and his description is those who serve the nations by humbly serving God in honesty and sincerity. This is what he says, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. These are not things that we can ever do on our own. And God here is relating himself to a shepherd that takes his sheep where they need to be so they would lie down. They do not need to be afraid. And it sounds simply amazing. A people who are unafraid who want to serve God in humility, who don't see the day of the Lord as destruction of all those people I hate and all my enemies, but as a day of joy where God shows His holiness and His grace and His redemption. This remnant that God brings to Himself is a work that God Himself is doing in the world. And this leads to the last thing Zephaniah talks about in the book. So you have the day of the Lord leads to humility, leads to understanding God's covenant promises. But sometimes when we understand God's covenant promises with us, it leads us to complacency. And we need to understand the perils of our complacency. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 12 says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. This is like a theist. God set the world in motion and then took off somewhere. Or an agnostic. I don't know if God exists, but if He does, He's not really doing anything, so He's out there not doing anything. What Zephaniah shows is that God is intimately involved. God has a lamp, and He's going into and looking at people's hearts. He is intimately connected to his people. And what does he find in their hearts? Mainly complacency. Mainly complacency. An old English translation of this verse is so great. He finds, he says, men who are thickening upon their lees. Oh, we don't speak like that anymore. Not that people would understand what it was, but I love that. It sounds so great. It's like they're sluggish and lifeless. Uh, you ate too much pizza and you're like, oh, I just got to sweat this off. It's just, you're just laying there, you know, not doing a whole lot. You feel sluggish. You're sedentary. You're relaxed. You're, you're unconcerned by anything or the plight of people around you. Everything is just meh. And that's how a lot of people got by the end of COVID. Not that we're even done with it yet. It's just meh. 
right? That's how we feel about everything around us. And the prophet says that that judgment that's shared for those who have active rebellion against God is the same for the complacent. We're just meh about everything because they refuse to love God or stand in the way of evil. George Adam Smith once wrote this, The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being sat upon. Interesting. And this is why Zephaniah's central theme is the day of the Lord. It is judgment. For two and a half of those three chapters, he just goes to town about God's coming wrath. And there's a reminder of this universal judgment that everyone's deeds are going to be weighed and everyone's deeds are going to be found wanting. For Israel, in this time and day, they had the worship of Baal, of who they were running after. They had foreign fads and fashions that they'd adopted. They compromised themselves so they could be just like everyone else. They had the exploitation of the poor and the most vulnerable. Like, they didn't care where their clothes came from as long as they were cheap. Ooh, that's too close to home. Okay, so anyway, uh, one commentator says this, The description of judgment is virtually unparalleled in biblical literature and sustained fury and awesome ire. Two-thirds of the book. So for me, two-thirds of the sermon goes that direction. But what you see is that then the book of Zephaniah takes a corner. And it starts to go somewhere else. And it starts to speak about the uh, salvation of God for us. You know, because God knows we cannot save ourselves. So Zephaniah 3, 8 through verse 20, the theme of judgment gives way to a picture of deliverance and restoration. That God is going to do a work in the world because we cannot save ourselves. Yes, God does have judgment upon the nations and here Judah specifically, but it's not punitive. It's meant to be corrective. Understanding the day of the Lord and all that he does is meant to lead us to Christ himself. When people understand the goodness in God saving us from ourselves, we will begin to call on the name of the Lord. Zephaniah says in chapter 3 verse 9 with pure speech with words that reflect who God is. And the faithful then will dwell securely because God is their salvation. It's not us. It's not our works. Our humility in the end doesn't even save us. Humility is a byproduct of understanding what God has done to rescue us. Our non-complacency doesn't save us. We don't become complacent anymore because we love God and want to live in the world with Him, so we stop being complacent. And that becomes the climax of the book, God's redemptive action. God promises that he himself will be in the midst of his people, that he will turn everything right side up, that we have turned upside down so that humility regains its proper place, and we live in a relationship with God. Listen to these words, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Who's the lame and the outcast? Uh, yes. You. No, all of us. That's who it is. Every single one of us. We're the lame. We're the outcast that God calls back to himself. The outcast in Jesus' story of the tax collector and the Pharisee is the tax collector. That's who it is. Jesus will even take a tax collector as one of his own disciples. If we go back to the themes of God's rescue for us and humility, and you look at that story, the tax clerk and the Pharisee, well, you have to understand in that story, that is a corporate event. There are lots of people there. They go up to the temple at the time of the daily sacrifice, and there'd be people sitting there looking at that tax collector saying, why is that guy here? That guy does not deserve to be here. He's the outcast. He should not get to come in. This would be like if maybe you used to do drugs. And your drug dealer comes walking through that door in the church service like, oh, what are they doing here? 
Or maybe you had a one-night stand with somebody, and then a few months later, they can walk to the door and say, oh, what are they doing here? Like, what are you doing here? What are they doing here? There's somebody DUIs right through your garage door at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And they come walking, what, what are they doing here? And I have to tell you, I have seen this happen. I have had people who have gone to Element for a couple years and then someone in the past in their life who they had a beef with or something happened or one of those things I talked about comes walking through the doors and they're like, oh, what are they doing here? I cannot believe they're here. I can't go to this church if they're going to be here. And I'm like, whoa, what do you want them to be? Worshiping the devil? Didn't you think that's what they were already doing before they came here? You should want them here. You should want them to know who Christ is in their life. At the time of the daily sacrifice, when the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee happened, the priest would make a sacrifice. Then he would go into the holy place and he would burn incense. And at that point, the people who were there in that outer courtyard would pray out loud. I know, if I ask you to pray out loud, half of you are like, just pull off my fingernails instead, please. I don't want to pray out loud. But they would pray out, out loud. So that's, and that's why you know what the Pharisee says and what the tax collector says, because they are praying out loud in this moment. And what you see in the midst of how they pray is that the Pharisee prays to send a message. The Pharisee's not praying in humbleness before God. He's praying to say, you should not be here, you dumb tax collector. But what does God want? God wants humility. And I would call that tax collector part of the remnant that God is bringing back. If you went into prayer at this time, only the clean people could go inside to pray. Tax collectors were considered unclean because of their close ties to the Roman government. And so they were supposed to stay outside the temple area, you know, where they belong, on the outside. Only the righteous could go in to pray. None of us would have been considered the righteous. None of us. We would have been stuck on the outside. And Jesus in telling the story on that day, what you see is that tax collector actually goes inside. And that had to freak everybody out. Why is this guy actually here? And what the Pharisee does is you see that he assumes he can measure his spiritual maturity in the eyes of God by what he is doing. Oh, I fast, I pray, I'm at temple, I do all these things. I go to 10 Bible studies a week. I know all these things about the Bible. But in the end, what did he do? He tore down another person. He assumes he could understand his relationship with God simply in terms of what he was doing and not the type of person that he was becoming. And that's a major theme of the prophets in the Old Testament and especially Zephaniah. All these questions about our righteousness and who God calls us to be. And this is, I think, why Jesus addresses it as well. If you asked any Pharisee, how's your spiritual life going? You know what it said? Great. I go to church, I fast, I fast more than anybody else I know, I tithe more than anybody else I know, I give, I worship, I do all these things. It's amazing. But what happened? He attacked another person. He attacked another person and he violated the law of love that God called him to. The Pharisee didn't have to look at the tax collector the way that he did. The Pharisee could have been like, oh my goodness, imagine what courage it takes for this guy to actually come in to the temple in this place. I mean, is he feeling lost, isolated, alone? Does he have a lot of shame, like he doesn't really want to be here? He could have gone and talked to him and said, I am so glad you're here because we all need the mercy and grace of God. How about I pray for you and then you pray for me? What would that have done? See, what Zephaniah is saying and what Jesus talks about is that in the great day of the Lord, when Jesus dies for our sins, rises from the grave, he sends his spirit into our lives 
and the, God's Spirit leads us where we are supposed to go. And where we're supposed to go is the places that understand who He is calling us to be in the world. A people who, yes, are not complacent, but a people who see those around us like He does. Those are the kinds of thoughts and behaviors that God's Spirit initiates in us. And this is what God is calling His people to by understanding that restoration of the remnant and the day of the Lord and humility and no longer being complacent. And if I could be so bold as to borrow Zephaniah's words and relate to Jesus' parable, I think we need to realize in humility that we are the remnant that God has saved and brought to Himself. And when we come and we are saved and brought to Himself, we start to become a people who live out in this world as His priests, as His ambassadors, as His hands and feet to the world. We live differently because of His rescue and salvation of us. We are no longer complacent, not because that makes God love us more, but simply because we are excited about what He has done in us and we want to live it out in the world. We become a people who live this great joy of our salvation in front of everyone. And yes, there are times when we will run off in different directions and God will come and He will discipline us, but He does it out of restorative love. And when that discipline comes, we need to ask God, what do you want me to learn in these moments? We should always be asking God to give us a better understanding of humility and grace because of a great understanding of the gospel that we would understand God's rescue of us first as He leads us and sends us out. Zephaniah's call is that we are to wake up to what God is doing in our lives, to wake up to what God is doing in the world, to wake up to be a people who live awake in the world, who show what real lives are supposed to be like when they worship Jesus first. Because He is the one who has rescued and saved and redeemed and changed us, that we get to be His ambassadors, His hands and feet to the world around us. We don't need to live like the Pharisee who judge everybody else around us because they don't have the same political views as us or didn't vote the way that we did or whatever. We are to see them, people in places that need to come to understand the great restorative love of God, and God can do a work in people's lives. He is the one that does the work. We get to be the ones who proclaim that to those around us. Now, I'm going to invite the band to come back up, wherever they are. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to uh, take communion. Communion is a place that we try and bring you to every single week that reminds us of Christ's great salvation given to us so that everything we see in the world would be different and see in the light of what Christ has actually done for us. That He would be the one who gets our worship and gets our praise, not, not our actions, not our Words, but His righteousness spoken over us. And this is why when you take communion, you have a little cracker. And that cracker gets broken like Christ's body was broken for us. And you have a little thing of grape juice. I know, I know, they spill half the time. I'm really sorry if you're wearing a white dress and you get it on you. It's, uh, we get it. You know, One day we're going to have normal communion again. One day. But anyway, it's a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed for us. It's, it's, it's a spiritual moment where we take our lives and understand what God did in His day to rescue us and bring us back to Himself. That it is not something we did. It is something that He did for us in our place. That our salvation is meant to lead us to a place of humility. We're not better than because we believe in Jesus. We just understand who we were and what God has done that has drawn us to Himself. And so we get to live in great peace and great joy because of our great salvation. 
And so I'd encourage you to take communion today in remembrance of that. If you need prayer, uh, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She will connect you with one of us today. And we'd love to pray with you. Maybe you feel like you're an outcast. Maybe you feel like every place you've stepped into has looked at you like, oh, you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? Maybe you feel like that. Or maybe you're someone who has a just has all this pride and you judge everybody else around you. What are all these sinners doing in this place? What are the kind of people are there? It's like, I'd love the questionnaires when we put these things out. People are like, well, I don't know if I should say something negative. We're all just messed up people. We are. And it is Christ who rescues and saves us and brings us back to himself. And so that is what we live in. His great salvation over us. So if you need prayer, let us know we'd love to pray with you. There are offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of the worship of what we do. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God is doing in our own hearts and lives. And I would also encourage you to grab those short little sermon notes with the two to three questions on it. And that you would talk through those this week with some people. You know, just those questions of, of who God is and what He is doing. What are the places where, who's outcast? What's the humbleness? What's the day of the Lord? The, start to talk about those things that draws back to a place of humbleness where we cease to be complacent. Again, not because God loves us more because we're not complacent. It's that we just become simply so excited that we're responding to what God has done in us. So we live that out in all that we do because God is simply that good to us. Drawing us to himself speaks of the judgment of what's going to happen, but God then takes that judgment upon himself to bring us to himself in the person of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us as a people and remind us daily of this great salvation that we have received, that you are a God who has brought us to yourself by your own will and your own choice that you are our rescuer and redeemer. And our salvation is not based upon ourselves or, or what we do or what we've done, but it is based upon you and your work for us. And in understanding that, I ask that you would have us be a people who begin to live out in this world in ways that we become your priests, your ambassadors, your, your hands and your feet to those around us. And that when we think of this great and awesome, mighty day of the Lord that is still to come, that we would look forward to it with hope and expectation. Because there is the great expectation of you putting all things together again as they are supposed to be. And I ask in that that we wouldn't be complacent knowing your sovereignty and knowing you're going to do what you're going to do, but we would then have such excitement that we get to live and work with you towards that end. That we get to be a people who understand the great call that you have given to us. And we live that out so that you are glorified and honored and that people would know who you are because of how we love and worship you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.